Welcome everyone to Kissing the Cod and uh, today's guest with us is Chris Buchanan. Chris, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you too, Janet. You are in Newfoundland and Labrador. The, the proper name is Newfoundland and Labrador. You are in Newfoundland though. I'm in Newfoundland right now, yeah. Um, I've been to Labrador though, a few times. But yeah, right now I'm in Millertown at, uh, at our field house. We're doing some, doing a phase of field work right now and uh, and we're taking some time out to have a chat with you. Nice. So Millertown is sort of central in Newfoundland? It's Yeah, it's pretty much right in the middle of the island. I'm not sure if it's the exact geographic center, but, uh, but I think that would be close enough. You're kind of almost equidistance to the south coast and the north coast of the island, and uh, east and west as well. So pretty much as central as you can get in the middle of nowhere. And, and a big history with the uh, railroad past. Uh, well, Millertown, not so much with the railroad. It uh, it is the it would have been the epicenter of the logging industry in Newfoundland, though, for the last hundred years or, or so that they've been logging here. So um, the the town itself was a logging. I might even have been a company town originally, judging by the layout. But uh, there's lots of remnants of the of its logging history around the town. And uh, of the old uh, the, the companies that ran the, the logging industry here in the early part of the century, it's got a lot of history. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, for the benefit of anyone listening, you and I have worked together a few times. Uh, I was yeah. involved uh, with C to C Gold. Uh, I've now moved off the board, but we worked there and we worked um, up in the Yukon together. Yeah, that's right. We did a gold project in the southeast Yukon that was. An exciting project that uh, is still hopefully going. Yeah, yeah, I hope it is. It was, um, I had fun up there. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the Three Aces was a pretty spectacular project. And I know when I first went out and worked on it, I was actually living in Newfoundland at the time when I went out for Northern Tiger. And uh, what, you know, what struck me about, I'd, I'd been doing some gold work on the island off and on over the years that I lived here. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of gold, bearing veins on the island with lots of VG. And what I liked about, uh, what struck me about Three Aces is the similarity in the veins and the, the, the amount of visible gold that was on that property. And uh, I always thought like, I always describe it as, it seemed like everything you touched on Three Aces had gold in it and almost always had visible gold. It didn't look too hard to, to find visible gold all, all across the property, which I thought was a pretty exciting, uh, property and it eventually drew me out to the Yukon to work there full time on it but uh but yeah I, I thought there was a lot of similarities with the gold systems that we see here on the island as well now you have uh your master's from memorial that's correct i did uh, i came out i moved to newfoundland uh 2000 2001 i moved out to newfoundland to start grad studies at the university it had been uh I'd been kind of looking around for a master's project for, for a couple of years at that point. I was living in Saskatoon doing uh, uranium exploration for Cameco. And uh, a fellow that I worked with, a consultant that worked for Cameco, had recommended uh, uh, Dr. Tom Klon was the structural geologist at Memorial at the time. And he was strongly rec or highly recommended to me to, uh, to study with if I wanted to learn more about structural geology and regional tectonics. And... Uh, when the opportunity came up for the for a master's project here, I kind of jumped at it because it was, you know, it had a, a number of things going for it. It was, you know, it, it was a Tom Kwan project. It was involved in the project, so you know that 
sort of got my attention right off the bat because he had just been recommended to me. And uh, it was a chance to come out to Newfoundland, which, you know, sort of a, a fabled part of, of Canadian lore. And uh, as a geologist, it's, you know, it's the, uh, it's the core of the Appalachian origin. And uh, Newfoundland's famous in geology circles because a lot of what we understand about uh, uh, the, the well, the Appalachian origin specifically, but also really sort of plate tectonics. How plate tectonics work in history was developed here on the island by uh, by researchers in the '70s and the '80s. So it was a pretty you know, all that kind of added up to being a uh, something to to do. And uh, and it, it's adventure. I thought it was going to be a good adventure. Come live on the island instead of just coming to visit it as a tourist. But I jumped at that opportunity to study at Memorial. And, and Memorial is well known across Canada as being a, a, a really strong geology school. Their, their geology program has really deep roots in, uh, on the island, and it's produced a lot of really strong researchers and exploration geologists. So the opportunity to study there seemed uh, like a really good idea. Excellent. And, uh, and I, I've, I've been told that it's all about structure. Uh, gold systems, I think, are all about structure. And I mean, I think lots of other systems as well. Um, ultimately, mineralize their gold deposits and uh, mineral deposits are always associated with structure. Either they've been, either they've been uh, affected by structure after the ore deposit formed and parts of the deposit have been, have been moved around and you need to understand how the faults have affected that. Um, and in the case of a lot of gold systems, particularly the orogenic style of gold systems that we are the models that we favor to find gold on the island are uh, all predicated on on fault systems for for driving the, the fluid system that create gold deposits and uh, Newfoundland has no shortage of structure. Interesting. Um, Labrador, you've been to Labrador. I'm, I'm, how different, because I don't think people uh, that haven't been there don't appreciate how different uh, the two areas are. Yeah, I mean, it's like a whole different, uh, it's like a different country up there. And uh, I think um, uh, Labrador often gets referred to as the as the big land, I think, in First Nations or in Inuit uh, uh, lore. And it's, uh, it's a big land when you go up there, especially when you fly over. I remember the first time I, I went up to, I was working on a project in the central mineral belt in uh, Labrador. And uh, I had to fly to Nain before I flew back down to Postville. And it, it was just, it was a really long, never ending flight. And there's, a, you know, as far as the eye can see is, uh, is rock and trees. And uh, it's a very, it's a very unforgiving environment too. Like it just, you look at it, it's a very, uh, it's a very barren looking place when you fly over it. And, uh, but uh, it's a lot more, everything about, everything about Labrador is just more remote. I mean, your exploration projects have logistical challenges of being, you know, air supported, you need flights or helicopters and it's a much more complex place to live or to work just because of the, uh, because of that, uh, that remote nature to it. It's like being in the Arctic. I mean, I guess to some extent it is the subarctic, but it's a lot like working uh, north of 60 in a lot of uh, places like the Yukon and Nunavut in the Northwest Territories. Yet, um, yet very mineral rich. It is very mineral rich. I mean, it hosts Boise's Bay, the world, one of the world's uh, largest, richest nickel deposits. And, uh, what I was up there for was uh, uranium deposits. There's a, the, the Makovic district in the central mineral belt has a number of 
of historical uh, uranium deposits that in that time frame around 2006, uranium was a was a very hot commodity. The price had spiked, and uh, I think almost everybody in the exploration industry jumped on that as an opportunity to, to do something. Although, ironically, the company that I was working for was, was Frontier Development Corporation, which became Aurora Energy. And they initially went there to uh, explore for IOCG type deposits uh, with a, they sort of had a, I think initially had a copper focus, but when uranium took off and they had a, a historical uranium deposit sitting on their uh, on their property with a resource that very quickly became the, the main focus of the of their exploration and, uh, or of their work is really a development uh, a development story at that point so they they greatly they they took that deposit from a a one million pound historical resource to something I think between deposits something around ninety million pounds I'd have wow. to double that number but. Yeah, it was a unique opportunity and it was a good yeah. I worked there for almost five years six years that uh, that I was involved off and on with that project and it was a it was an interesting time you like uranium uh or uranium likes me <laughs> <laughs> good <laughs> yeah. so well I mean in that time I, I don't know well I mean you guys you've always been sort of exposed to uranium with Bill and his exposure to uranium uh, in 2006, the last time there'd been any significant uranium exploration in the globe was in the, the late 70s and early 80s. And when the when uranium crashed in the 80s, nobody went back to it. And uh, at that time, finding finding a geologist that had any amount of significant uranium exploration experience was uh, was exceedingly difficult. Nobody had at that point nobody had done it for uh, for 25 years. So I was kind of in a unique position to be based in St. John's and had met the people that were doing, you know, doing running Frontier and doing that work. So it was kind of a, you know, just one of those moments in time where everything kind of coalesces to be the right time at the right place. And, uh, and uranium happened for me again. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's happening again that um, there's a shortage of, uh, technical expertise because it's been since 2006 again right so yeah kind of in the same spot right yeah i think uh because it hasn't been as big a time frame though you still find lots of geologists that had that did uranium in that sort of four or five year window that uranium was was good before it died off again so it's a little easier to find uranium people but i think in a bigger picture um you know some of the things that we've had since 2008 uh finding geologists that have, um, you know, significant amounts of experience and have worked on numerous projects uh, is harder. And, you know, the universities have been producing smaller classes and we've been graduating less geologists. So it's not just a uranium specific challenge to find technically trained people. It's just finding trained geologists uh, in general, I think is something that uh, at least in my experience in the last couple of years, has affected the entire industry. I know everywhere, every project I've been involved in in the last couple of years, you know, the first question you get asked is like, hey, do you know anybody that can come and log core or do this or that? Everybody's always kind of searching for more people. Yeah, but, it's, it's, it's very, um, you have to like the field work, right? You do have to, well, I tend to lean towards the field work. That's kind of my background. And my first love is being on the rocks and, mm-hmm. and, figuring out what they have to say to us and, and what information they have to offer. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, that's, I think that's 
one of the most important things of driving any exploration program is being on the rocks and you have to do that in the field. You can't, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of tools that we can bring to bear that are, you know, remote sensing and geochemistry and, and all sorts of new, new tools in that vein that are coming along. But at the end of the day, you still have to go look at the rocks and understand what they're doing firsthand. So it's, yeah. uh, I'm yeah. a big believer in field work. Well, I love that um, a unique adventure drew you to do your master's uh, in Newfoundland. Why, why geology? Why did you pick that course? Um, you know, it was kind of accidental, Janet. I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but, uh, you know, I was in high school in Ontario. I grew up in Ontario and, uh, I had, you know, you get to the end of high school at, at that time we did OACs, like they'd replaced grade 13 with OACs and you're in that last year of, of high school and you're trying to figure out what you want to study at university. And, it, and you do little tours, right? You go around all the you know, Southern Ontario universities and you go you look and see what they have to offer in different programs. And I kind of came to this realization. I thought I was going to study engineering. I came to this realization that maybe engineering wasn't a good fit for me, that, you know, the more I learned about it, the more I realized it's more time spent in the office than it is in the outdoors. And, you know, I, I was very outdoor oriented uh, kid growing up and, and, you know, as a teenager, I did a lot of uh, outdoor adventuring type of camping and canoe trips and that type of thing. And so I was kind of lost. And my mother, of all people, suggested I look at geology. She had uh, my father was a teacher. And one of the, the the one of the the guys that he worked with was a he taught chemistry at the high school I went to. But uh, he was a geologist, and he spent his summers. He would uh, when school year ended, he would go to Northern Ontario and. And go get a whole bunch of claims staked up there, and he would go prospecting and, and mapping. So I talked to him, and he kind of directed me in that direction. And I started looking at, I started, you know, instead of going to engineering programs, I started looking at what geology had to offer, and it seemed a lot more, seemed to fit what I liked to do with my life a lot more in terms of being in the outdoors and, uh, and spending time um, adventuring like that. It seemed more adventurous than maybe an engineering career. Not that there's anything wrong with engineering. Oh no, we, for my personality, we 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 need them. But I'm amazed that so many uh, people I speak to that um, have an education and work in geology. It, there's a there's a consistent theme. Is I didn't want an office job. I, I yeah. wanted to be outside, and and one way or another, they ended up in geology. And um, yeah. the love of the land is is constant. Yeah, it's a yeah. I mean, it's and I still I still love doing. I mean, you know, twenty five plus years into my career, and I still, you know, want to spend more time. On, I don't always get to spend as much time in the field as I like, but uh, but that's where I want to be. You know, I want to be out looking at the rocks and uh, in camps, and I still like going to camp, and uh, and and I think that's been a probably a thread that has held my whole career together. Is yeah. that sort of that aspect of it. And this is one of the things that um, I, don't, I think people need to better understand about the people within the exploration and mining sector is, is the, this love of the land that makes you want to be on it and understand it. And um, that's a huge um, uh, respect for the environment. And, and I think that's a message that I think gets lost a lot is, is not trying to exploit it. You're trying to understand it and benefit, <laughs> you know, but it's a very different, I, I think, I don't know how you feel about that. 
Uh, yeah, no, I think so too. And I think, I mean, I started my career in the mid nineties and it was in the middle of what was an extended downturn for the mineral exploration industry. And, you know, the previous big boom had been in the, the late seventies and the eighties and a lot of work got done in that time frame, And it's particularly in the, the work that was done in the seventies and the, in the fifties, you, you see those old camps and the, the, the areas that people were working in and you, you know, at that time, a lot of my, uh, when I first started, a lot of my uh, project geologists and exploration managers and my BPXs that all started their careers in the late 60s and early 70s. And, uh, and, and since that time frame, you know, moving forward through 25 years of working in the industry, I feel like I've seen a lot of changes inside the industry in terms of their attitudes towards how we, you know, how we approach environmental regulations and, and run our camps and, uh, and just generally do our work. I mean, I see it usually from a sort of grass root stage mm-hmm. to, you know, to sort of advanced drilling stages. But I think even at when we get to a mine site, I think people are more, I think the industry in general is more aware that we, you know, need to consider what our ultimate impact is at the end of mine life, right? I think we consider an end of mine life more often than than what I felt maybe when I started my career, it kind of felt like you were kind of, uh, you know, you were a bit of a cow, you know, it felt, it felt a little bit wild west is the word I'm looking for, where okay. you just kind of, you went and you did your work and well, we have to do this work. So if we have to mow down, you know, a bunch of trees, then that's what we do. If you spill some diesel, well, so be it. That's, you know, the cost of doing business. And I don't think that attitude is as prevalent in the industry at all anymore. And I think as younger Younger geologists have come into the industry too. Um, you know, they're they've grown up in a different environment than I mean, I grew up in the 80s where, you know, people still wanted to change their oil. They just dropped the plug into the oil pan and drained it in the corner of their driveway. And uh, you know, I, I don't think uh people that have grown up in the last 15 to 20 years uh have uh necessarily had that experience right so they they come to us they come to the industry with a different outlook on the environment and yeah what our impact on it is as well yeah i agree i agree and i think often it, people look mm-hmm. back um and they don't appreciate how much progress has been made in as you say in 25 years and it's it's significant and and i see yeah. this across across the different commodities whether it's uranium or or gold right yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's right across the board. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great industry. But you, so you worked for Cameco. I worked for Cameco. That's where I started my my career. I was there for four four and a half years when I left to, to do my master's. And uh, I mean, that was uh, you know, well, I mean, that's a very formative time period in everybody's career. And uh, you know, is. Cameco is an interesting company in the sense that it's, uh, you know, it's it's a major player in the uh, in the uranium industry. It is the you know the sort of the global uh, dominant senior member of the it's, exploration it's, world. It's EF Hutton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying. It's kind of like it's like a Barry Gold or a Newmont of yeah, uh, yeah. of uranium, right? But they. Um, but but at the same time, it's really a mid-tier mining-sized company. It doesn't, it, you know, although because it it was you know it had done that transition from being a government corporation to being privatized, it still carried some bureaucracy that was reminiscent of governments. But uh, but it was also you know it didn't feel like you were working for a giant conglomerate uh, either. 
but you know, in, in expiration in that time frame, uh, Cameco is a mining company first and foremost. They they mine uranium, and and in the nineties, uranium was rock bottom. You know, seven dollars a pound. Cameco shares were seven dollars a share, and there was no no traction to be had in the in the uranium world. It wasn't a commodity that anybody paid attention to, and uh, and the global supply was being largely met by the you know taking enriched uranium and, and reprocessing it to de-weaponize the world or try and de-weaponize the world. So, you know, exploration was a sort of a secondary component, it felt like sometimes. Like we were a pretty small department relative to the size of the company. And and you know, we were there, but everything was run sort of by the engineering side that was geared towards making the mines happen and uh, getting McCarthy River up and going and getting Cigar Lake up and going. Well, that, that was, uh, I guess, Arano for the pre predecessors to Arano that were doing that. But that's now Canico. And, uh, you know, so we kind of lived our own, we were kind of like our own little community within the company. And we did our, you know, we we're kind of, we were to some extent isolated to the point at one point they moved exploration out of the main office into their own office and separated them completely from, from the company. That was after I was there, but uh, it still felt like that when I was there. But at the time, I didn't realize what, um, what an advantage that was to work with a fairly small, tight group of people, and and a lot of like all the geologists that had worked there, you know, I was I was in my mid twenties, and there was a there was four of us that were we had been brought onto the company sort of within a year of each other, and then the next youngest geologist in the exploration department was uh, in his late thirties, early forties at the time. There was a very big age gap between within the staffing group there, which sort of reflects hiring practices at the time. I mean, there was not a lot of geology jobs around and uh, um, there was, uh, and, th and there wasn't really, because there wasn't a lot of work being done and, and there was not a lot of geologists being generated by universities. So that I was, I'm part of that gap mm -hmm. in, in geologists where there's, you know, we have a, a large portion of geology is about to retire or yeah. is retiring. And uh, I'm in I'm in the gap, and then we have some you know younger geologists that are kind of ten years, fifteen years behind me that have come into the industry. And then I think there's another gap there that was created in 2014, 2012 to 2014 when the industry was was slow there again. But that gave me an opportunity to uh, <clears throat> work with a lot of senior geologists that had a lot of really good experience, both on the gold side of the Saskatchewan mining industry and and within uranium. And uh, I didn't realize at the time the amount of mentoring that I was getting and how much, uh, you know, hands-on training that I got from senior geologists. And I think, uh, you know, I've worked for, you know, because I've been consulting for a long time as well, I've worked for a lot of different clients and they're usually on the junior side of the industry. And I, I come into their programs and usually what you have in the field is a lot of really young geologists that have been sent out to the field to run a program. They've been given a drill or five drills and uh, no real guidance on what to do with them and how to run that program. And, uh, and, and every time I see that, I realize, uh, I realize what a benefit Canico was to me in terms of training me how to log core and, and run camps. And, uh, and, and I think that gets missed a lot in the industry now. And, yeah. Uh, it's something that that we as a you know now that I'm becoming a more senior member of the industry you know need to keep in mind too that young geos need guidance and uh, they need training and they need on the job training and universities can't do everything 
you know, they, they already do a lot in four years, but there's a lot, there's still a lot to learn um, after you're, after you've graduated. And uh, sometimes we forget to give them that training. Wow. Um, so now you made the switch to gold and you made the switch to Newfoundland. So what, what's, what's going on there? There's a, um, we all say there's a gold rush going on, but, but tell, tell me what you see going on. Uh, well, I mean, you're right. There's a gold rush. There's certainly, I mean, there's what, 75 companies working on the island now or 75, more than 75 companies, I think now probably, but as a rough number, um, you know, when I, when I was in Newfoundland, the first few years I was here, I didn't see much of the industry, right? I was pretty tied into my master's and that was a purely academic uh, project mapping on the, the West coast of the island uh, in one of the Ophiolite trains. And uh and I was kind of isolated from what was happening with industry, but industry was still slow back then too. And it was just starting, gold was just starting to pick up in around 2003. And that's when I sort of came back into the industry. I started picking up some summer contracts to, to make some extra money. And I was working for, uh, I initially worked for a company called Rubicon that was uh, had come to the island and staked a fairly large land position uh, across the island. And and Altius at that time was just starting to to grow. And between Rubicon and Altius, uh, they you know they they had well in terms of today's terms a mini staking rush. But uh, you know I, I look at what the land package was in that time frame to what the land package is now, and you know I'm sure Newfoundland has never been so staked in its uh, in its history than it is now. There's really nothing left to to stake, and that's the I mean a good and a bad thing, but uh, it's good for the, certainly good to see that much effort being focused on Newfoundland and to have that many different, that many, you don't, you know, there's so many eyes now on so many different little parts of the, the province and, and things are getting looked at that probably haven't been, maybe never looked at. There's lots of new things popping up and being discovered, but uh, you know, areas that haven't been looked at since the eighties the in any real detail. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, you know, I think that's the benefit of the gold rush is how many uh, how many companies it's brought in and how many new people are coming to the island to to work on it. And only only good things can come out of that. I mean, you know, the old boots and hammer discovery type historical geology um, way of working. That'll be a you know that takes a lot of people and. Uh, and so the more companies that come with the more people that are walking the ground and banging the rocks and peeling moss back on outcrops is, uh, is going to be helpful. And I'm sure there's going to be more discoveries to be made in the next couple of years. So the, the it's, it's proportional, more, more eyes on it, more chance for discovery, more knowledge acquired. Yeah. It's more, you, you cover more ground, right? I mean, if you have, if you're one company and you've got 10 geologists working for you or five geologists or maybe two geologists, you can only go so many places in a, in a season, right? You can only look at so much rock and your, you know, the way land packages work and, and budgets work. You can only, you can only do so much work in different parts of the, uh, the, of your land package and you get spread thin. So now that we have this huge land package that's staked up between all of the companies and you're, you know, you're bringing, you at 75 companies, even if you just, uh, even if each company only has two geologists, which isn't the case, but you're still, you know, you're still bringing a lot more people to bear and uh, you're covering more of the ground. And that's to me, in my mind, that's what leads to discoveries. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Rubicon, um, 
did a lot of work and provided a lot of, of base knowledge to to the companies that are now there taking it to another level, correct? I, yeah, that is correct. And I mean, Altius as well. And they're, uh, another company that came along in that time frame was Crosshair. And between those three companies, they were you know, they were run by some, uh, some smart, very experienced geologists that had, uh, you know, long histories of exploration um, in our, on the island. And uh, they had their, you know, like every geologist has their, their pet projects that they've worked on when they're at some point in their careers that maybe they didn't feel got enough attention or, mm-hmm. you know, had more to be done. So I think between the, the, the group of geologists that were running those companies in that time frame, they all had their their little areas that they wanted to to follow up on, and uh, and, and they also had a good depth of experience in how to do regional work. And we had new tools, right? We had new airborne mags. We had better airborne mag surveys than probably what had ever been flown on the island. The the tools were more refined than they had been in the eighties, and our ability to fly tight grids and higher resolution surveys. And a lot of that work got done. A lot of the island was flown in that time frame. And I mean, to this day, we still use the products that Rubicon and Altius and yeah. Crosshair collected yeah. on the island. They're still underpin our broader geophysical data sets. So, so I think that's what sort of led to some of their sec. Again, it was experience guiding guiding the process that, that yeah. led to their successes. I really enjoyed when we were at uh, in Toronto in June uh, at the Prospector and Developers Conference. I really enjoyed the Altius presentation. It really shows how much work uh, they've either uh, created or led to create across the across the island. Yeah, I mean, Altius is a pretty dynamic com- company, and again. Uh, you know, they've got some very, uh, at this point now, they're very experienced geologists. I think in, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, they were they were all young and they had lots of energy. And mm-hmm. that uh, is largely what drove their success. But also, you know, at that time frame, uh, they also had some very experienced senior geologists that had worked on the island that were helping guide them as well, too. So they had, they had, I, another example of they had really good mentorship that was uh, helping guide them um, in how to develop their projects and, and develop that company, which they've continued that success to, to, I mean, Altheus is a globally successful company at this point with their models. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So at the, the objective of all this exploration is to, to make a gold discovery. Uh, we have a lot of companies out there now uh, with with that objective, and and uh, C to C is one of them. So, what are what are you doing with with C to C that you can? I know you have to be careful what how much you say. So, just <laughs> yeah, tell well, me my level what you're doing. I- <laughs> yeah, so C to C is a. I mean, it's a company that is. Uh, I guess first and foremost, uh, when it came to the island, is focused on grassroots discovery. We were partnered with uh, with Sean Ryan, who's a you know a prospector of uh, great success out of the Yukon, and and he had uh, he had gone looking for areas of Canada that maybe uh, were underexplored or had potential for success, and and he he you know came across Labrador. I think initially he came to Labrador, I believe. And then expanded onto the island as he got to know more about the area. And in that time frame, you know, I think he came here around 2015 or so. And there wasn't a lot of land staked at that point. I think the map was pretty, pretty empty. A few of the key prospects were, were staked up, but a large 
area of central Newfoundland and the central mineral belt of, of the island was was unstaked and he you know he resolved that problem and staked a lot of it up and and so when c2c you know followed sean in and partnered with them to option a number of his properties we you know we we kind of followed his his method of operating which is to you know get as much land as you can get a very large area of land and then do very large grassroots geochemical surveys so large tilt surveys and broadly space sampling um, surveys to try and identify anomalies and then focus in on on that early grassroots target generation to do more refined target generation so for the last year since i came on board with c2c that's been largely my focus is uh is driving driving those exploration or those geochemical surveys to try and cover as much of the structures as we can to identify areas of structures that are anomalous that haven't been, you know, haven't been explored in the past, uh, mm -hmm. particularly with the gold um, aspect to them. So that that's taken up a lot of my time. And then at the same time, I'm trying to, to get a handle on, uh, you know, the geology that underlies our, our properties and uh, you know try and refine some of that understanding it's uh, Newfoundland is a place the geology is complex and it's not well exposed so a lot of very smart workers and researchers have mapped and remapped and mapped uh, numerous times in Newfoundland but because of the cover it's still there's always unresolved questions and there's a, my my experience in Newfoundland is there's always there's always something that can be tweaked by a new set of eyes or a you know a different a, a different even just a different traverse through the woods might find you a different outcrop that gives mm -hmm. you a piece of information that adds to the to the uh to the story and, and, and lots of, oh sorry oh no go ahead oh i was just gonna say my my supervisor when i was working with tom on the island he always he always told me about uh working in switzerland he was european he grew up in the netherlands and uh he did all his graduate work in norway and and in uh, uh, work in Switzerland. And he always told me like, you know, Switzerland is this little tiny country in the middle of Europe. It's landlocked. And over the last 150 years, they've had like 80 revisions to the national geological map of, of the country. Newfoundland's had, you know, two or three revisions of their geology map. So, I mean, the, the point that he was making was that you can always, you can always learn something new and you can always add to the knowledge base and, and improve what you're, you know, how you're looking at the rocks and how you understand them. And that just leads to helping you discover new deposits. So. Yeah. And it's, and, and there are a number of um, discoveries in the, in the past few years that have led to the increase in companies. There's um, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great deal of, of, on the ground work, um, but exciting. Uh, it's very exciting. I mean, you know, it's nice to see, uh, you know, I mean, Victoria Lake gold deposit with Marathon Gold, uh, you know, there's been people have worked in that area for a long time and it's nice to see it, you know, coming to fruition that there's finally going to be a mine there. And there's been a lot of, you know, it's been uh, for Marathon, it's been a, a long haul of developing that system and putting all the bits and pieces of it together and and finding the the string of deposits that make up the overall deposit and it's nice to see that it's finally going to be a significant gold deposit or a, a significant gold mine um, i mean that obviously makes us all excited because if you have 
gold someplace, then you can, that means you can find it somewhere. Now we're, now we're exploring in the shadow of a head frame, so to speak, right? Whereas before yeah. we were, we were in, in new ground. And, and I mean, I think the same with newfound golds discoveries, like that, uh, you know, that's a belt that people have kind of picked away at for, for a long time, but to see it, uh, to see the level of success that they've had in putting together a bigger story and and being able to follow up on that with significant resources and really push that forward. I think that's probably something that's always held Newfoundland back is to be able to bring the level of resources yeah. to to a drill program that you just you know have uh, you have the resources to to drive it forward. Well, they so. they certainly they certainly have that now. Yes, they certainly. And, yeah, it's great. Uh, last season when you were out there said it was extremely hard to get a hotel room, extremely hard to get a truck. All of the infrastructure was strained. Still a, a busy season again this year. Uh, yeah. As uh, well, I tried to rent trucks there a couple of weeks ago. There's still nothing available. I think uh, what I told uh, Brady was there was a RAV4 in St. John's that we could rent for a couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, so I think resources are still, uh, are still difficult. Um, I think, to some extent, the pressure on the labs, I think, have relieved that have been relieved a little bit. I don't know if it's entirely resolved. I think our labs are still going to be um, challenged uh, as the season goes on. But uh, I know Eastern Analytical added a lot of capacity to their sample processing, so that helps. Um, I haven't. We have a field house, so we're kind of fortunate that when we come to the island, we always have a place to to stay. That's that we're kind of sheltered a little bit from the hotel thing, but. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I was looking for hotels in St. John's the other day for September, and there was still actually quite a few hotels that were saying they're booked up, and that's yeah. looking out a month and a half. So I think there is still logistical challenges like that that make it more challenging to uh, to do flight or to do uh, to do work. But great for um, local suppliers; they're busy. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nice I hope to- they're happy, and I, I hope that expiration is having a uh, you know a good trickle down effect i mean that's how we we sell our industry is that uh, you know we provide jobs we provide good jobs they're usually well paid and uh and then we you know all of our our needs trickle out into the local local businesses to uh to get either things that we need done or to get supplies and to buy groceries and i'm sure the grocery stores have noticed that yeah being good neighbors making sure that uh others come along with you right yeah, that's always our. Um, that's always my hope, anyways. I mean, I like yeah. we try and support our local businesses as as much as we can, and I like yeah. to see. I want them to be successful too. So, yeah, no, I think it's great. Um, and and Freddie uh, is working with you, another geologist. He's out in the field he's now. A, yeah, he's a geologist that's uh, that's joined us again this summer. So he's doing recce reconnaissance work for for uh, so the properties that we brought on when we acquired the rock, and uh, so he's he's out there somewhere. Driving around, <laughs> happy, happy looking at rocks, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. We're all happy looking at rocks. I mean, that's a geology thing, right? Just yeah. to ask my wife the number of times she's had to stop at a roadside outcrop so that I can. <laughs> I've had to do that with my husband. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like I, I think like about a million people have driven on this highway. They might have looked at this outcrop before, but no, I haven't. Have I haven't looked at it before. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we um, when we uh, got married and got a house together, um, the moving truck came in and it was full of rocks. 
And, <laughs> and I was just absolutely stunned. Like there was, I said, I don't I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with all these rocks. And I was looking at them. I said, well, maybe we could like make a rock garden out of them. And, and Bill looked at me and he went, no, these are indoor rocks. They don't like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when you're not a geologist and your husband tells you these are indoor rocks, it really gets confusing fast. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I've got a number of what were indoor rocks that are now in a rock garden. So there you go. You, you do that by traveling too much and then things just happen. You come home and your, your, your indoor rocks have become outdoor rocks. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Well, I, I, I know what it's like having a lot of rocks in the house. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, it's, it's, it's been fun talking to you. I really enjoyed myself and um, I, I thank you for your time. Uh, also want to uh, let, make sure you say hi to Freddie for me. Yeah, I will do that when I see him here. And uh, yeah, thank you for uh, for inviting me, Janet. It's been pleasant to, to chat with you. And, uh, yeah. Good luck this season. I hope everybody has a, a fabulous season and uh, we'll keep an eye on, on C2C and the other 75 yeah. companies that are toiling away in their quest uh, for gold. So, well, who did I work for? Well, it was actually when I was working with Northern Tiger and we, we were spending time with uh, the company that Bering Resources had properties north of us adjacent to our property. And uh, we did some work with their, uh, with their VPX. We, we did a lot of knowledge sharing. So I was, I was traversing with, his, uh, with his, his mapping geology as well. We spent a lot of time together just talking about what we were looking at and what we were seeing on the two different properties. And, and I always appreciated that from Dave because he... Um, his, his attitude towards was that we're, we were building a new district. I mean, that was a very underexplored area of the Yukon, but, but he was like, the more we, the more we share and the more we understand about what's happening on both sides of this property boundary and what we're each looking at, the better chance we have of putting that district together. And I think that holds true in Newfoundland as well, too. There's, uh, you know, the more, you know, everybody can be successful here and, you know, because we all have our land packages pretty much locked up now and there's not much room to expand there, you know, the more we, uh, the more we talk to each other and, uh, and share what we're seeing and as results come out, then uh, the more likelihood we all are to have success in finding that next bit of gold in Newfoundland. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that about Newfoundland, very collaborative, a lot of information sharing between the companies yeah. and, you know, um, all boats float higher. Yeah, and particularly with the government too, right? I mean, the geological survey here is integral to mineral exploration on the island. And it, a lot of that is because they're so keen to share what they know and what they understand of the island and, and show you what they've seen and, uh, yeah. and help you understand what you're looking at as well too. So, you know, the yeah. collaboration goes sort of there's like a, a triangular three-point collaborative process there that I think is very active on the island. Yeah, great, great team at the geological survey. Some really fabulous yeah. people that and have been there for quite some time. So you, you, as you say, you're getting the the senior people and the and the younger, um, uh, not just geologists but uh, experts in their field, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah perfect. Thank you very much, Janet. Thanks, and, and thanks to everybody for joining us. And and stay tuned and come back and visit us at um, Kissing the Cod. Thanks all. <laughs>